The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Lloyd, you may remember that when we went to the Poneman Institute, when I was first made a fellow of the Poneman Institute, we met a wonderful bunch of people, and there we met Peggy Eisenhower. She is one of the top privacy people in this country. She's brilliant. She's wonderful. I think you're going to enjoy listening to her tonight. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her background. Margaret Peggy Eisenhower is the founder of Privacy Information Management Services, Margaret P. Eisenhower, PC. For the past 17 years, she's helped hundreds of companies develop and document privacy, security, and fair information practices programs. She has extensive experience with both the United States and international privacy laws, as well as industry practices for managing customer, consumer, and employee information. In addition to the traditional legal compliance work, she provides privacy assessment services, training, and assistance with privacy and security incident responses. Peggy was identified as one of the top 25 American privacy law consultants by Computer World in not only in March 2006, but in October 2007 and December 2008. Her firm also was rated one of the eight privacy firms to watch by Computer World in 2007. And prior to forming her own firm, she founded and led the Hunton and Williams LLC Privacy and Information Management Practice Group. And she's also served as General Counsel and Director of Data Acquisition for Information America, Inc., which is now Westlaw. In addition to having her law degree with honors from the University of Georgia School of Law, She also holds a Master of Science in Information and Computer Science from the Georgia Institute of Technology. And she's a member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which is I'm a member of too. And she is a Certified Information Privacy Professional and a member of the Certified Information Privacy Professionals Advisory Board and a fellow of the Poneman Institute, and a member of Nimity Advisory Council. And she's a wonderful instructor. In fact, when I was studying to get my CIPP, Certified Information Privacy Professional, she was one of the teachers. And she authored a casebook for IAPP called A Global Survey of Privacy and Security Enforcement Actions with Recommendations for Reducing Risk. And she has so much more wonderful things about her as well as on information that she provides free at privacystudio.com. I'm so thrilled that she's joining us all the way from that Southern Bells state. We welcome Peggy. Hi, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. Well, Peggy, by the way, you were such a great teacher when I when I took that. I think it was in Toronto, but it was really fun. How is it that you became such a techie? Well, thank thank you, by the way, and I appreciate the comments on my teaching. The Certified Information Privacy course is actually one of the highlights of the, the stuff I do. 
And um, but but in terms of you know how did I become a techie? Uh, sometimes I wonder whether I am. But mm-hmm. I do have a computer science degree from Georgia Tech, and um, that is where my sports loyalty lie. Despite the fact that they are not in the tournament this year, I, I laugh because you know the, the question isn't why do I have a technology degree. The question is why do I have a law degree? And uh, I have a law degree because I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy, and um, my career options being you know law school or m- maybe man management at Taco Bell. Uh, my parents <laughs> helped me see the path to uh, to career fulfillment, financial fulfillment. And uh, when I graduated from law school, I really didn't want to practice law, so I went and got a computer science degree. And uh, it, it turns out, probably not surprisingly to people who know me, but it, it turns out that I'm a better lawyer than I am programmer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you gotta, you got to go with your strengths, right? Exactly. Well, it's... Here it's I a- am. <laughs> No, it's great. And you've been able to blend those, which is is terrific. So tell me, what are the biggest issues of security and privacy facing companies today? We have a lot of companies that drive by and are listening here and maybe listening to our podcast. What should they be worried about? And what are the biggest issues in security? Well, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the biggest issue by far is trying to figure out how we understand security risks and how we allocate our resources to best address those risks. And the challenge is that we used to think of security risks in terms of real threats to either the data or to the company or to the individuals, you know, uh, about whom the data pertained. And today, because of security breach notification laws and because companies, you know, do understand that people want transparency around incidents and so forth, uh, we provide a lot of notices about security breaches where the the breach, if you will, the incident, it is more a loss of control event. You know, we, we don't know where something is. Uh, we, we thought we knew where it was, but, but we don't. We're, you know, maybe it's in an off-site vendor. Maybe it's uh, in a box that we haven't, uh, we haven't identified. And the problem is that means we have to allocate a lot of resource to management of resources as well as to, to risks. Uh, to the kind of traditional security risks. And that's a, a good thing in some ways, but it creates real challenges because companies tend to have, you know, some finite amount of resource to spend. So understanding how to do your risk assessment and how to uh, allocate your security budget, if you will, I think is by far the biggest challenge. And it's probably going to be less expensive in prevention of a breach than if you actually experience a breach. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's you know that that, that sounds true, and, and in some sense, it's true. The problem is that the the risk of error is never zero. I mean, the one thing I learned at computer uh, in computer science, right, is that the risk of error is never zero. Exactly. And so, I I can't truly prevent. I can minimize. Right. And and at some point, you know, so so I don't care how good your security program is, you will deal with incidents. Um, I, I once had a, a company, it wasn't a client, but I once had a company that told me that, you know, they'd never had an incident. And I, I mean, I laughed at them. I said, you're not looking. Uh, <laughs> right. Because you're going to have them. So I, I think it sounds it sounds good to say we should prevent. We should certainly take steps to prevent. But you can't, you know, you can't prevent. So we have to make sure that we allocate towards preventing those incidents and those loss of control events that affect you know, that, that affect our more sensitive data and, and that uh, represent a, a real threat. Right. And, and many states like California do have the, the carrot out there that if you actually encrypt the data, then you don't have to go through all that expense of notifying and, and dealing with those extra expenses, right? And that's certainly true. In fact, every single state, uh, if your data is encrypted, as long as you haven't lost the encryption code, uh, you haven't compromised it, you are are able to avoid notification. There, there are different ways you get to that avoidance of the notification, but encryption is is uh, pretty successful at avoiding notification. Right, uh, save and, some money, and also preventing harm. Right, right, exactly. I mean, that was but that like, was the hope yeah. <laughs> of encryption, but, right? But like everything else, encryption has its limits. You know, it, it doesn't work for paper. Right. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't work for certain types of non-computerized data or really any type of non-computerized data. 
And for legacy data, data, you know, if you have data today, you collect it today, you transmit it today, easy to encrypt. You have data, you know, in your off-site storage facility in boxes, your, uh, your historical records. Right. Really can't go back and encrypt it. Right. Or some of those old backup tapes, right? Exactly. And, and then, of course, tapes. yeah, and yeah, exactly. And and then if you've got a uh, unscrupulous employee who's got the key to unencrypt, then then that's a problem, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and that's it. That's a biggie, issue. huh? It's a biggie. Yep. What about what are the biggest issues that are facing all of us as consumers? Well, I, I think, you know, I, first of all, I think from an individual standpoint, and I talk to consumers sometimes, I talk to other parents of kids, and I think just understanding what the threats are that we face. Um, you know, everybody's, we all want the latest technology, we all want the latest gadget, we all want the latest, you know, uh, phone or or uh, application for our phone. And understanding that, you know, the data flows and the risks associated with that is really hard. I mean, it's hard for me, and I have a computer science degree, um, you know, it's, it's virtually impossible for my mom. And so I, I think the biggest challenge is making sure that as we adopt new technologies and we, you know, uh, use new services, that we understand what the risks are. Um, and, and I don't want to dampen anybody's enthusiasm for new technology and new tech services. I'm, I am an early adopter um, by far, and, and I think, you know, not adopting is worse than adopting uh, and having risk. But, but just understanding what those risks are and, and also understanding when there's not risk. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about security breach notification letters. You just mentioned that. And one of the things I've, uh, one of the questions I've gotten from people uh, from time to time is, well, you know, they offered me credit monitoring or they offered me a service, uh, but when I went to enroll, they wanted my social security number. And while I didn't feel comfortable with that, well, understanding when it's okay right, um, and when it's a benefit to you is important, too. Right, exactly. You know, you were talking about, you know, all the, the new technology and the cell phones and understanding the risk. I think one of the challenges is it, it's very hard for consumers to understand the risk because they don't even understand how to use it. My husband just got this new cell phone that is so far beyond <laughs> what he could handle. It's just, you know, just trying to even understand that, let alone the risks and how to use the settings to protect your privacy. It's, it's almost overwhelming. It seems to me it would be real helpful if companies could make the, um, the technology such that they let you know the risks and up front kind of protect you. In other words, make the default more protective rather than open and then give you the option to open because I think most people don't even understand that. What do you think? I, well, you know, I, I certainly agree with that, and I think companies struggle with what the default should be. I mean, that's a you know that is a sixty-four thousand dollar question, um, and you know, some companies based on their you know based on their outlook have fairly restrictive default settings. Others, based on you know their outlook and their understanding of what their users want, uh, have more liberal settings. Whether the settings are you know, whatever the settings are, it seems like there's going to be some population that's not happy with them. Right. And, you know, half of the people that aren't happy think they're too tight and half the people that aren't happy think they're too loose. And, you know, so it's, it's very hard to make products, I think, that, that please the masses. But I, I, I do agree with one thing, which is, you know, regardless of what the defaults are, companies need to make sure that um, the settings are clearly visible and the and they're intuitive to use, and the information um, about how to use them is, you know, written in plain English and available. And I think we've seen um, I think we've seen real strides in that, particularly in technologies that are, you know, focused at at, at younger people. I don't want, I don't want to say kids, but young adults. Um, uh, in light of some of the complaints that we've seen about technology, about the applications and the defaults. Yeah. So I, I think that commitment's there. But it's, Yeah, it's and I hard. think that's good. It's I think hard. it's getting I think it's getting a little bit better, you know, when I click on something and I ask, you know, help, it it's almost understandable. <laughs> and some of the new uh programs that I've gotten. So that's that's 
I think you're right that we have to educate consumers so they make good choices and businesses so they make good choices. But I think it's it's really incumbent upon companies to make it a little bit easier for us to do that. Let's switch gears and let's talk a little bit about the HIPAA security breach notification. A lot of people aren't even that familiar with HIPAA. Can you explain that and then how this new notification rules will Will help. Um, HIPAA is a federal law uh, that is designed to regulate and encourage the uh, adoption of technology in the healthcare space, so that we have standardized uh, transactions for healthcare information and for healthcare payments and so forth. And it's part of a, a, a much bigger, much longer-term uh, effort to modernize the delivery of healthcare and. and the delivery uh, handling, if you will, of healthcare information. As part of uh, President Obama's stimulus package, the latest package, uh, there were significant uh, efforts made to uh, invest in additional healthcare technology. And as part of that investment, the privacy provisions that exist under HIPAA and the security provisions um, that exist today have been revised and have been strengthened. And one of those aspects is a requirement for notification of security breaches involving uh, the type of uh, health information, personal health information. It's called protected health information in the Act, but I don't like to use that word because my mom once thought there was unprotected health information, and that's not true. And she's so a good barometer. I'm on a, yeah. Yeah, I'm on a one-woman campaign that it's personal health information. I am a right. truly, truly a voice in the wilderness, let me be clear, um, <laughs> in, in so many ways. But uh, with regard to uh, uh, information about individuals that's covered by the rule, um, the, you know, the reality is that to the extent the information that your health care provider, your health insurance company has about you contains your social security number or a uh, financial account number. In many cases, notification, uh, if that data is, is compromised, is already required by state law. So almost every state has a security breach notification law, and every one of those states uh, requires notification if, for example, social security numbers or financial account information are disclosed. The new rules will go beyond that and will require notification of individuals if other types of medical information are disclosed, much like California law currently does. Um, right, right. I was just going to mention that. For those of you yeah. who are California residents, you are already covered for your sensitive information if it, since last year. So right. we, we kind of led the way. Mm-hmm. And more broadly, and Puerto Rico has that requirement as well, um, so you're, you're in front, but you're not alone. <laughs> That's uh, the, good. The, That's good. There you go. There, but, there, but there's a problem with it. And, and, I'll, and I'll share with you, you know, as somebody that works with companies, uh, for the most part, my clients and, and other companies that I've talked to, you know, if they compromise information, you know, they, they, they want to address the risks. I mean, I don't have any clients that say, well, we, you know, we don't care. We're flipping about it. You know, you just, I, I don't see that. The problem is, what is the, you know, what is the possible harm? Is it embarrassment? Is it uh, concerns about, you know, insurability? What is the harm? We have to figure out what the possible harms would be. Uh, and it varies widely depending on the type of information, right? Exactly. And what do we tell people to do? And what can we do for people? And, and so whose we, hands it got into, right? I mean... The, well, that's, that's part, I mean, that's right. part of the risk question. Right. And, you know, the... HIPAA, the, the way the rules are drafted now, there's not a harm trigger. So mere loss of control would trigger notification, even, you know, absent some sense that there's harm. Um, it, and that happens actually pretty frequently. It may surprise you or your listeners, but oftentimes we don't know where we've put a file. We think it's here. You know, it's within our space, likely, but right. we don't know. Right. But, but the second, uh, you know, the second issue is, you know, what are these notices going to look like? What, what do we say? So when I draft a notice, if I have a client who's lost your Social Security number, I would, you know, I can tell them, here's the harm that can result. Identity theft is a, is a potential harm. We understand that as a risk. I'm not saying we manage that as a risk well, either, you know, by anybody in the chain, mm-hmm. but we understand it as a risk. And I can tell my client, 
this is what you can do for somebody who has had, a, you know, if we've lost a Social Security number. Mm-hmm. You can purchase credit monitoring. You can uh, instruct them how to do a credit freeze. You can instruct them how to do a credit uh, a fraud alert. We can do these things. If you lose their credit card number, I know what to do. We can call the bank. We can get a new card issued. We talk about who pays for it, but we know what to do. I know how to get a new piece of plastic in your hand if I've lost your, your, your payment card number. If I've lost, the, you know, your diagnosis, that you have gallstones, what do, what do I do? Right. I can apologize, mm-hmm. but what is the harm? How do I address that harm? How do I, what do I tell you to do? So my concern is we're going to send out a lot of letters, and we're going to say, we really have, you know, we're, we're sorry. We've done something, but we have no idea what it means for you, and we have no idea what to do. And you may, depending on the, the risk, you may not be, you may not have any harm other than just being upset with us. You know, or you may have some harm, but we don't really understand what that is. We don't know how to manage it. Yeah, and it may be a different kind of Yeah, you know, and and that kind of leads to a really, I think, important issue for for those people who contact me who are victims of medical identity theft, and not just for money, but somebody stealing their their, uh, insurance uh, benefits, for example, um, which could be a a, a real harm, such as if somebody has to get a blood transfusion and and they are appearing to have uh the wrong blood type that could be really very very dangerous or or commit you know cause death so you know it seems to me peggy and we don't have this but you know like the medical information bureau that collects information just from insurance companies when i've written to ask at MIB.com to ask them for what they have on me. They said they don't even have anything on me. But if we did have some kind of central repositories like we have with the credit reporting agencies, then you would have an ability to check and see if your diagnosis or something else was being affected in some way in this central repository. Do you know what I mean? There's no place sure. to, to report. There's no so, so it is. You're out in la-la land. What do you do with this? I mean, you're absolutely well, think, right. You know, I, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that the Act is designed to encourage are the development of health information exchanges, which are bigger repositories of health information that multiple uh, uh, providers and, and insurers and so forth can access. Um, I, you know, one of the reasons for this, for the strengthened uh, provisions around privacy and security is a concern that those things were largely these kind of health information exchanges, which are neither providers nor insurers, were largely uncovered. Um, you know, I, I've certainly heard the other side, too, which is if all our medical records are in one place, doesn't that raise privacy risks? Doesn't that raise civil liberties risks? And so, you know, it's, there's, there's the rock and the hard place. I, I think the answer, you know, the, the right answer from my perspective and so I heard uh, Lloyd's disclaimer that these aren't the views of your sponsors, and I have no idea whether these are even my views. But, but what comes to mind, you know, and I'm saying it right, but what comes to mind is that it makes sense to me from both um, from a care perspective as well as from an efficiency perspective that we should have centralized collections of health information where you could go and access them, where you could uh, uh, have the ability to apply a correction and have that disseminated, for example. Um, you know, uh, the original HIPAA privacy rules attempted to address the, the issue you raised where somebody's, uh, your medical records are not accurate because somebody else has played in that space. Right. The same way that the credit reporting agencies, uh, I guess, protect accuracy by mandating an accounting of disclosure. So you can go see your records, you can see who they were disclosed to, you have access rights. You have, and yeah, you and, you have, and you have a right to have it corrected, right. And mm-hmm. have it corrected, um, which is, you know, I, I think a very important thing. I, I will say I routinely tell um, consumers that I talk to, people that I talk to, to go and check their credit reports regularly, you know, at least once a year and using the rotating, you know, using your free uh, credit report access you want to be able to your free annual credit report you got to be able to access your credit reports on a rotating basis i can honestly say that i have never i'm just thinking out loud i have never told anybody go access your medical records 
I have and, never and you know, that's the hard part. You know, it is like I've gone to M- you can go to MIB.com and that's Medical Information Bureau. And they sure. are mandated under FACTA to provide a free access once a year. But they'll come back and tell you you're not in here. But they, yeah, but they don't have. I mean, I'm familiar with the MIB. Yeah. But they don't have your medical records. No, I mean, they but have they have they have your insurance cases. records. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you but know, your you medical information is in there supposedly, but it's not. So you're I, right. It's not. Though, I don't think. Yeah. So no. If I wanted to access mine, I would go down to, you know, Northside Hospital here in Atlanta where I gave birth, and I have two kids, and I can just only imagine what my medical records would look like if I tried to access them. And I have tried to access medical records. And sometimes, you know, they're all over the place, Peggy. Let's say you had one kid at one hospital, one at another. I mean, even for us to go around and get all those medical records is going to be tough. And then who knows what's in the ones that from your kids, right? And can you and can you interpret them? So when you get your when you get your consumer report from one of the bureaus, you get a consumer disclosure, which explains everything and presents it. And those are those aren't always so easy to read either. (laughs) That's right. Well, but but they've they've first of all they've improved a lot, and second of all, you can find somebody that can help you read them because they're not right. You know, it doesn't take rocket science. It doesn't take a medical degree. Let me put it that way. Right, right. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, there's certainly no mandate. Um, you know, un, under HIPAA, that there be any type of standardized consumer disclosure. Well, you know, it would. I think that there should be, and I think it should be such that you can actually make corrections. Right now, we have found, and I think you you might have seen Pam Dixon's reports on medical identity theft, but. I have had a heck of a time helping victims of medical identity theft when it isn't financial, but it's medical identity theft to correct the records because the the hospitals and the doctors don't want to really change anything in it. Some of it they say is due to malpractice insurance issues, but they will just add an addendum that they, you know, that this person says they're a victim of identity theft, but it doesn't really change the records. So there is a real issue as to the you know the privacy principles with regard to to HIPAA and to all uh, medical records. I think I think that's the next big area that we're going to have to make some dramatic changes as we go into this digital stuff, don't you? Well, I, I do. I, I think you know I'm 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 hesitant. I'm I'm extremely hesitant to say that I think we should go and, you know, we should sort of retrofit these requirements on providers, um, you know, sort of retroactively for files, because I could imagine that adding tremendous costs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and, and that scares me. I think the answer, and I, and I think where, you know, I think where the legislation is going is to encourage the development of personal health records, where instead of your health provider being sort of the source of your records, it's you, and you have control over your PHR, and you manage that, and you decide, you know, who you're going to share that with and so forth. And, and I think that it's that movement from traditional provider-controlled, uh, if you will, data to consumer-controlled PHRs that is going to enable us to both manage the medical identity theft issues, which are, you know, tr- tremendously problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of problematic in the life or death sense, right. you know, much more so than financial identity theft. Um, but, but tremendously difficult to clean up. You know, how do you, how do you fix that? I, I don't know the answer. I mean, right. I really don't know the answer. It, it, it's and hard. And I think once you control your PHR, and if you have confidence, what we need to do is we need to make sure that you have confidence that you you can have a PHR that's complete. So I think that the, the tendency or the, the risk will be that individuals will manage their PHRs to remove information that they're scared of from privacy issues. So the fact that I engage in risky behaviors, you know, the fact that I've had venereal disease, the fact that I've had, you know, that I smoke six packs a day. You know, all of those kinds of the fact that I have genetic indicators for disease, um, the, the kinds of things that scare people uh, and, and inhibit them from either disclosing that information or from getting tested for certain types of, of issues. I, I think it's going to be very important for people to have control over the information and to have confidence in their control. 
We're speaking today with tonight with Margaret Eisenhower, Peggy Eisenhower, who is the founder of Privacy and Information Management Services. She's an attorney, and she is also uh, she has a master's degree in information and computer science from Georgia Institute of Technology. She is terrific. She does all sorts of con- consulting for major companies across the com- country on security and privacy issues. And we're talking right now about personal health records and HIPAA and all these things. Let me ask you something. And and Peggy, if if I have a personal health record and let's say I am in I have the management and control over it, what about the insurance carriers? Are they're not going to just accept what's in my personal health ca- uh, records, right? I mean, how, how is that going to jive with that? Well, I you know, I I don't know the answer to that. I'll be honest with you, and I'm not this is not a space that I'm uh, perhaps as expert in as some of your other guests. I think the rules for how uh, information is consolidated both uh, in uh, personal health records and in health information exchanges and how we sync those things up and ensure that we've got accurate data for insurance purposes and for uh, other types of purposes like public health registries and so forth uh, is a tremendous challenge and a tremendous opportunity for the people who are setting those policies. Right. I just I, I like the idea of of the Fair Credit Reporting Act type of approach so that we have that ability as individuals to see our health records, make sure it's correct because if someone is going to decide whether I get health insurance or I get life insurance or I get a loan or whatever do you know or anything relating to my health I want to make sure that it's correct, and and I want to be able to make that correction without, and and have the transparency that allows me to do that. That that's the one thing I think that isn't really there. Like you said, you can't tell people go and get all of your health records because what if they've been all? What if they moved all over the world? How are they going to get all those health records? It's going to be a lifelong, uh, you know, problem to try and even collect that. So yeah. I get. I don't know what to say. Well, and I, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, would you would you need to do that if you'd moved all over and those records weren't being used as part of your, you know, your current treatment regime? Then I'm less worried about them. Um, it's it's the records that are maintained by people that are actively providers uh, of healthcare to you, or that could potentially be providers of healthcare to you. Um, the emergency room you know, in the, in the uh, hospital of the city you live in. Um, I, you know, I think that we need to focus on what are the, you know, uh, what are the risks and what are the opportunities and, what are, and prioritize based on that. And I think people do need to have the ability to maintain their health records. They do need to have the ability to uh, correct any errors, particularly errors that are uh, a result from identity theft, but also errors that just result from, you know, from, from errors, right, right. from mistakes. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, my father-in-law was talking the other day. He'd gotten, the doctor called him about blood results, and, and he said, that doesn't make any sense. And the doctor looked at the form and said, you know what, it doesn't make any sense. And he went back, and it was a mix-up mix in the lab. They just coded the wrong uh, patient ID and reported somebody else's uh, lab results. And, you so, know, that, that's you know, even happened to me. And I had a lady, sure. this is this is a real scary one. I had a woman who was a physician who was trying to get disability insurance. She was a mother with two young kids like you. And she tried to get disability insurance and she couldn't get it. And she finally was able to see through her uh, insurance carrier that the reason that she couldn't get disability insurance was because there were, that she had some lab tests and they said that she had AIDS. <laughs> and she never had AIDS. It was yeah. an error. They mis they miscoded it, like you're saying. So, right. you're absolutely right. And she wouldn't have found out about it had she not applied for disability insurance. So, and that's and I, and I think that's to be honest with you. I mean, I don't want to downplay the medical identity theft risk because that is huge, and and I don't think we understand the scope of that problem completely or right. at all. Right. Um, but I can tell you, you know, if, if any regime you have, if you don't account for a significant amount of human error you've got a problem. 
Exactly. People make errors all the time. You know, it's not it's not malicious. It's not anything. It's just that we're human. They're tired. They're filling in some form, and they put in the wrong number. It, it happens right. all the time. Exactly. That's right. So that's that's going to be interesting to talk about as we see what happens with the changes in these medical records. Let's let's kind of switch gear right now and talk about people actually. You know, everybody's online now. What are some things that people can do? to actually protect themselves online from the security and privacy threats? Well, the, I, the, the thing that I tell everybody, and I think the most important thing, if I could get, you know, if I could just get everybody's attention for one moment and I could say, please, when you're dealing with anything online, offline for that matter, but especially online, please be skeptical. You know, you have not won the U.N. lottery. <laughs> I know you'd like to think you won the U.N. lottery, but in fact, you have, I got an email actually last week. I won second place in the UN email lottery. I thought that was a nice touch. No, I didn't win it. I was the second place winner. And um, you know, that was only going to get me a million dollars or something. You, you, you didn't win. I, I just, I'm sorry, you didn't. And I, I think people need to be skeptical. They need to be skeptical when stuff gets forwarded to them. We have, you know, every year about this time, in fact, I just got my first one a couple weeks ago, I get forwarded from friends or, or clients, people who should know better, you know, a letter that says, if you don't register your cell phone number for the do not call list by June 1, you're going to be included in a directory of cell phone numbers that are going to be used for email marketing or for right. cell phone marketing. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can register your cell phone number for the do not call list. And if you haven't done so, by all means, go ahead and do it. But that June 1 cell phone directory is not real. It's never been real. That thing's been circulating forever. And I, and I see just all kinds of stuff go by. And I, so my, my, the first thing you can do is just be skeptical. Just because it's in writing doesn't mean it, you know, doesn't mean it exists. If you get something from your bank that suggests you need to log in to reaffirm your contact information, if you get something from, you know, somebody that even somebody whose brand you trust and whose, you know, whose you know, relationship you value, be skeptical. Bank of America is not going to ask you to log in and, you know, reset your password. Not going to happen. Right. So I, I think that's the most important thing. I mean, I think the second thing is, you know, you, you need to make sure you filter out the other harms and things. You need to have virus control. You need to have a firewall. If you don't know how to do it, you know, either talk to your, you know, your teenager right. uh, who can explain it all to you or talk to your IT, IT person at work. They'll help you. Um, and make sure that you've got, you know, a virus program that works. Make sure it's current. And, uh, and and keep that kind of stuff up to date. I read an article not too long ago about the little notebook computers, the little, uh, not notebooks, but uh, what are they called? Le- uh, of the little teeny computers, you can get them for a couple hundred dollars at Costco now mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. just, you know, they don't have very much of a disk and they, they, they just designed for Internet access. Right. And uh, you can buy one, a netbook, that's what it's called, a netbook. Uh-huh. Thank you. And you can buy this thing for a couple hundred dollars, and you can use it to surf the web. And it's very portable. It's very lightweight. It's very small. And you can just use it to surf the web. But often these things don't come with the same kinds of software preloaded that your traditional notebook computer would come with. So if you buy one of these things, they're extremely cool. Um, Just make sure that you go out and you get the subscription you need to the virus uh, software, to the firewall software, so you're protected. Yeah, and, and also the anti-spyware is important, too. Exactly, all of that. What What is the third? We talked about the first one is be skeptical. The The second one is to run your anti-spyware. And then I thought you said there was a third the, big oh, deal. The third, thing, uh, the third thing I want people to do is understand, you know, uh, one of the things that I see people do that puts themselves at risk is they transfer information very insecurely. They'll put information in an email yes. or... You know, they'll, uh, they'll interact with a website without really understanding whether it's secure or not. And, you know, one of the advantages of the payment card industry standard um, is that I very seldom today see websites that, don't, that aren't using um, secure socket layer SSL encryption. And, you know, consumers can just really easily, you know, if you're, if you're on a website, 
just make a point to look and see, does it say HTTPS, right? Do you see the little lock? Is there some indication that this is secure? If not, step back and ask, is this okay? Um, every once in a while, you'll find somebody that's not, uh, that's not compliant, and you're in, you, know, you have risk if you pr- provide your information that way. And don't put your social security number, your bank account number, your, you know, anything private, anything sensitive like that in email if it's not encrypted. Um, you know, if you're on somebody's website and you want to leave a comment, I've seen this where we've got, I've got clients that will have a website that says leave a comment. And, you know, we'll get a comment that's got, you know, my account number is, right. you know, and it's like, okay, you know, we can only do so much. Um, and yeah, and, we, we have to be, you know, cognizant of that. I, I get emails all the time. In fact, I just got one today where a client sent me in a PDF file that was not encrypted, all sorts of bank financial information. All right. And the entire yeah. account was on there. Or I even get from attorneys, they'll say, you know, at the bottom of their email, it'll say this is confidential. And then they send me this this data that's in a word or a pdf file and it's not encrypted and they're telling me make sure you keep this confidential and it even says it in the subject head so it can be anybody i even had a financial planner who sent me all these things about you know there were some rollovers and i said oh my gosh you're sending this to me as an attachment and it's not encrypted and it's so easy either through you know, uh, Microsoft or their various um, different types of very easy programs that you can learn to encrypt and you just have it password protected. So I, I, you know, I just want to say you're absolutely right. And even professionals who are driving by, who are listening to this, this isn't just people who are consumers. We're seeing this in businesses, right, Peggy? Absolutely. Now, you know, larger companies can buy technology to identify when inappropriate things are being sent out in, you know, via email, for example, and can block them. And I think that's really important. But we see so much leakage of information. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying just because you emailed your, you know, your social to your tax guy once that you're going to be the victim of identity theft. Right. But it's a risk. So it's one thing that I just, you know, I would just say, whether you're a uh, an individual, whether you're a consumer, whether you're a business owner, you you need to be thinking about security of data when it's in motion. And, you know, right now with this economy, I want to go back to the first one, which you were saying to people to be skeptical. You are 100 percent right. I have had so many people who called me who've been the victims of scams. They've been there was a, a woman recently. She is a single mom trying to you know raise her kids. Her ex-husband is out of work, so she's not getting support. She was desperate. She goes on Craigslist trying to sell things and also, you know, saying that she, you know, needs some money. And she was offered a job that was a scam. It was a scam. She had to, you know, pay money to get money. And I don't even want to tell you what ended up happening to her, but we're talking about $100,000 worth of debt that she has now that she's going to have to go bankrupt that's being skeptical, whether somebody contacts you or you're going online to Craigslist or anyplace else, don't trust anybody till you check something out all over the place. You know, you need to just, if, if, if something sounds too good to be true, the old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I mean, I just, you see that in California. I see that in Atlanta. Uh, you know, if you talk to somebody in New York City, I bet they're going to tell you the same thing. Yes. It doesn't matter where you are. And there are people that want to steal your information. There are more people that just want to steal your money. And, you know, you, you just need to, to be very skeptical. Yes. Just don't trust anybody. You know, you, just like, you know, people think just because they're they're interacting with somebody online and they seem so nice, you know, just don't trust them. You don't know them. Think about if you, you know, you have to, same thing if dinner, internet dating, anything like that. Just be, like you said, be skeptical. We're speaking with, with Peggy Eisenhower, who is an attorney and she is a privacy and security expert. She is the founder of Privacy and Information Management Services in Atlanta, Georgia. And she's got a cute little accent, not real heavy, but just enough so that we know that she is a Southern lady. And she was identified as one of the 
top 25 American privacy law consultants by Computer World in 2006, 2007, and 2008. So we're thrilled to have her on here. I had another question, Peggy, when we're talking about businesses who are driving by, um, and a lot of some of them are small, some of them are medium, and some some of them are really larger businesses. Um, what about outsource, outsourcing? What kind of threats are there to th- privacy and security when they're outsourcing? Well, you know that's a that's an interesting question. I used to get asked that question all the time, and it's been a long time since anybody's asked me that. I think that, you know, the silver lining, if there is one with respect to all the security breach notification laws, is that it's now uh, uh, crystal clear to everyone that we can lose our own data. Thank you very much. Uh, you don't have to worry about our outsources losing it for us. Um, but, the, but the reality is, you know, we all use service providers. I mean, I am a very small company, and I have service providers. We all have service providers. We all share um, our company's information with service providers. And we need to understand that the, the biggest risk we always have is, our, you know, is our own workers, not necessarily because they want to do us harm, although certainly we see a, a lot of uh, uh, associate theft and associate uh, fraud, but because they're human, and we just talked about that a, a minute ago, people make mistakes. And when you outsource, one of the problems is that you tend to outsource to people that also hire humans. Um, and they also tend to be fallible, and they also tend to make mistakes. So it's very seldom that you're going to outsource to somebody who's going to eliminate privacy or security risks. Um, I think that it's, you know, it's really critical when you have a service provider of any type that you look at them as a, you know, as a partner in your privacy and security efforts. You have to be very clear with them what information you're giving them, uh, if it's sensitive, you know, what the rules are for it what the security standards ought to be. Uh, If you're not satisfied with their own, you need to specify them. And what to do in the event that there is an incident, you know, how they should notify you, what steps you're going to take and how you're going to work together to resolve the issue and, and, you know, mitigate any harm. And I think that's, you know, I think those things are the key. And if you do those things, then hopefully you'll be sharing your information with people who really are a partner of yours and who can provide services um, that, you know, meet at least or even exceed the types of controls that you can have in place. Right. It's a little scary when we think of outsourcing to other comp- countries like Pakistan and India. We even have less control. And, of course, law enforcement doesn't have as much, um, well, I guess the word is control or access over there as well. Um, and we're seeing a lot of companies are outsourcing to India uh, Spain. What do you, what about that? Is that, is well, that a different kind of issue? See. I, you know, it, it, it's really not. I mean, I, it, it's exactly the same issue. And I think, it, you know, it used to be the case a few years ago, there was a lot of discussion about offshore outsourcing or offshoring. And uh, some of the national news people, I think Lou Dobbs, for example, you know, had this big thing about, oh, our data is going to India. And, you know, in some sense, it was almost xenophobic. Um, and the reality is, again, the silver lining of the security breach notification laws is that your data doesn't have to go to India to be lost. It can be lost just as easily in Des Moines, exactly. um, if not more easily. And, you know, I think the other thing is one of the things my clients tell me is that their offshore data centers, many of these are captives. I mean, many of these are their own affiliates. They control them. They own them. And what they tell me is they're state of the art. Mm-hmm. You know, the, our data center in India has more controls. It was built with security in mind. And our data center in Des Moines was built in 1962. And, you know, it's it's almost not capable of being uh, uh, retrofitted with the same level of security. So I, I'm pretty much past any personal concerns I had about offshoring. Mm-hmm. I think my advice to, you know, anyone listening who uses an offshore data provider, whether it's another company or yourself, is the the one thing you should do is you should have a plan for your data where it is. So if you don't know what time it is, where your data is, you should know that. If you don't know, you know, who you would call if there were an incident there, you should know that. Um, you know, if you call me at 430 on Friday and tell me you've had an incident in, you know, a pick a country... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going to feel bad for you. 
<laughs> right. Right. If, especially so if you don't know what to do. Data, right. That's right. So, you know, if you've got it's a like, lot of sensitive data. Yeah, it's like, Peggy, in, we're going to give you a, a, an airplane ticket here. Go to India right. for I, us. I don't, I don't travel. I'm just as smart on the phone as I am in person. <laughs> and it's not all that smart, right? But you, you should know who you would call locally and what the remedies would be if there were an incident, what types of incidents could happen. And, and that's all part of your security. You know, that's all part of your security assessment. So if you have sensitive data, regardless of where it is, you think about what are all the risks. And if it's outside the U.S., that's one of the risks you think about. Exactly. Let's, for businesses that are concerned with marketing and, and knowing the rules and all that stuff, what about behavioral targeting and behavioral advertising. Why don't you explain to my audience what that is and what kinds of concerns there are about that? Behavioral advertising, you know, behavioral targeting is one of the hottest topics in sort of privacy today from a policy perspective. And, the, you know, at its, at its uh, core, what we're talking about doing is determining, you know, or, or trying to determine individual characteristics without personal information. So without knowing who you are, but looking at your behavior online, where do you go? What do you look at? Uh, we can understand who you are and what you might be interested in, and we can market to you that way. So if you know that I go online, you don't necessarily know who I am, but you've got uh, uh, knowledge of my device through a cookie or through some other mechanism. And I look at outdoor furniture, and I look at grills, and I look at, you know, uh, all of these different things. You might deduce, for example, that I'm redoing my patio, and you might want to feed me advertisements for patio umbrellas, for example. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't need to know anything about me, but you know somebody looking at grills and outdoor furniture and so forth is a better target for the ad on umbrellas than for the ad on snowshoes. And that might save me some time. It, it might. It might be good. Yeah. And I think that where we are as an industry, and, and the Federal Trade Commission has recently held some hearings on the topic, and there are a number of groups that have published some guidelines, um, industry guidelines. And, and I think the good news is that industry recognizes today that identity, you know, information about who you are, isn't really necessary for there to be privacy implications. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I define personal information in a, in a privacy policy for a client, we think about any information that can be used not only to identify you, but to locate you or to contact you, to, to feed you information, even if I don't know your name or your address or, or you know, anything about who you really are. And so I think this is going to be a, a, a great step because it's going to give people the ability to um, understand the kinds of data that are collected, uh, allow that data to be collected if they want the targeting and the personalization, but work with companies that understand that just because I don't know your name or your social security number, um, you should still have some control over the relationship. Right. You know, it reminds me of a time that I, Beth Givens, who's the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, had gotten some complaints from a mother who had a stillborn uh, child. And so here she was in the middle of grieving, and she's receiving all these advertisements for huggies and baby stuff, and it was devastating for her. So I think, you know, people forget, like, okay, well, maybe I have a new patio, and, oh, that's interesting, I'm not interested in that uh, patio set or whatever. And that, to me, wouldn't bother me, but someone who might really be experiencing some other information, um, you know, that might be very painful to them. So, you know, that that was one example of behavioral advertising that would not be wanted during that time. Sure. You know, and if I go, and, you know, if I go to a medical record site and I look up, I don't know, irritable bowel, I don't necessarily want to be getting ads for Depends. right. Right, um, exactly. And, and I think, you know, I think the industry is, is you know, does understand that. And one of the, the pro, uh, provisions, I guess, one of the points in the codes that are being developed is that information such as medical information w- will never be used for this kind of targeting. Right. What about biometrics? Why don't you explain? I know a lot of companies are starting to use it. Why don't you explain what, uh, what that is and, and what the issues are? 
Well, it, biometrics are, um, you know, any anything that identifies you based on your physical characteristic. We see fingerprints being used a lot in this country today. Um, I recently um, was watching somebody go through the clear line at the airport. They use a fingerprint and I believe an optical scan, so a multi uh, multiple biometrics. But things like voice prints would be biometrics, facial. Uh, uh, facial feature recognition, right. uh, all of these kinds of things. I, I think, you know, from my from what I see my clients doing, I see a lot of use of fingerprints in, you know, in sort of corporate America for a couple things, for authentication and some purposes, uh, oftentimes for convenience, that it's easier instead of issuing badges to employees, if they can use their fingerprint to access certain types of areas, uh, First of all, the employees won't lose them, and I won't have risk created with the loss of the credential. Um, but second of all, I know the credential is going to always be associated with the individual that was issued that fingerprint, if you will. Um, the, the risks, I, I think, when I talk to companies are oftentimes that we don't understand the limits of them. So fingerprints, for example, are a great thing. You know, over the course of your life, your fingerprint changes as your body changes, as you get bigger and smaller and fatter and thinner and different types of characteristics, your fingerprints will change just like other features of your body. And so your biometric systems may, you know, at some point not be able to recognize, you may get a false negative um, based on the system. And I, I think companies that use them just need to be aware of the limitations of them and take that into account. They're, you know, they're like anything else. The, the error rate is never zero. Well, you know, we don't have a lot of time right now. We're almost at the end. Would you believe that? Why don't you just tell us, um, first of all, just kind of if you can wrap up and tell us, what do you think are going to be the biggest issues in privacy in the next five, ten years? Wow. Uh, you know, I, I think there's so many issues. I mean, I think information security is going to continue to be a challenge. We've got to figure out what, you know, how we think about security in a way that's rational where should our uh, resources be allocated? How do we best prioritize risks? Um, and how do we deal with the emerging threats? And I think that's going to continue to be a very interesting uh, set of challenges for companies. Um, you know, from a consumer perspective, I, I think that the challenges are going to continue to be um, keeping up with the technology and understanding the technology, keeping up with our kids, and making sure that our kids continue to have access to the technology and, um, and that they're supported so that they become safe users. And I, I think groups like Wired Safety is just very important in that regard. I think we need to make sure we understand that our data is very powerful and protecting it is very important, but using it to generate value for us is very important, too. Amanda's telling me and Lloyd's telling me it's time to go. We want to thank you so much. We will have to have you on back next year to tell us what's going on in privacy, what we need to be doing, and we thank you for joining us. We'll have you again. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to Privacy Piracy, and we've been talking with Peggy Eisenhower, who's the founder of Privacy and Information Management Services. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week from Wednesday, on Wednesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests and download podcasts and write us about what you want to know about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming back a friend of mine who's also been on our show, Privacy Piracy. She is a wonderful support for law enforcement, and her name is Patricia Winskunas, and she is the CEO of Crime Survivors, which is a nonprofit agency in Orange County dedicated to ensuring that the public knows victims' rights and needs 
And this wonderful nonprofit provides resources, support, and information to empower crime victims to survive and thrive. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you very much for having us. So we've talked before about your wonderful nonprofit that you've had for almost five years. What is your vision? Our vision is for victims of crime to recover from their experience mentally, physically, financially, emotionally, by receiving the respect from not only the community, but from law enforcement, the judicial system, and just everybody that's involved from A to Z within becoming a victim of a crime. And I know you were a victim of a crime and you've become a real victor for yourself and for other people. What are some of the programs that you've developed to reach this great vision? We offer awareness, prevention, and survival. So we have programs within each of those categories. But one of our main thing is working within the law enforcement agency in the community is to provide victim emergency bags and resource guides. And those are carried in most of the law enforcement cars here in Orange County, and we're working in Los Angeles as well. And those bags are given out to victims the first 24 hours so that they know that they have all the resources that they would need to survive and thrive. You are terrific. I know so many times we always worry about the, you know, the perpetrator's rights, but there are a lot more rights for victims that really need to be enforced. And we thank you because we know you are doing your job. Why don't you just give your website and we'll have you back next week. Great. Our main website is www.crimesurvivors.com. We also have a uh, another website for our run walk. It's surviveandthriverunwalk.org. Okay, we'll have you back again next week. Thanks so much, Patricia. Great, thank you. Bye-bye. 